Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends. If you're doing it the right way, anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. Yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Travis Makes Friends podcast. Today's a midweek mashup, and if you are new to the show, our midweek mashup is basically a chance for us to really dive deep into a certain topic. And what we do is we take the topic and then we go search into the history of the show, which is now coming up on 900 episodes, which is insane. And we find some of the best experts that we brought on and find some of the best advice that we've been given here on the show about this topic, and we put it all into one smashing big hit of an episode for you so you don't have to go look for it if this is what you're looking for. So today's topic, how to get what you want, which is really what everybody's listening to the show for. You're here to level up and you're here to learn how to go get what you want out of life to make uh, life do things for you rather than life making you do things for it. So how to get what you want. We brought in a few experts on this topic specifically. First off, we brought in David Meltzer. David's a keynote speaker, coach, consultant, podcaster, showrunner. He's got shows on Apple TV. On, on Amazon. He's a media expert. He's really, really well-connected guy. Uh, the movie Jerry Maguire is based off of him after he got into the sports marketing industry. Back after he actually went bankrupt, he, lost, he had built up a nine-figure war chest, lost it all, and then ended up starting another company and built it right back up again. So master of how to go get what you want, that's for sure. And then we brought in Jason Harris. Jason is the the founder of a really large digital marketing company. One of the ones where it's like, you know, I'm kind of in this online coaching space and there's a lot of people that have agencies and do marketing for other people. But then when you go talk to people like Jason who do marketing for companies like, you know, Peloton and other massive you know, publicly traded companies where their baseline retainer is like, you know, a six figure a month type of a thing. He has a different approach. And I've always appreciated Jason, his advice. He has a podcast, he has a book, The Art of Persuasion. And uh, yeah, just a really, really great all around guy. He's always been super kind to me and been willing to give advice out whenever he can. And I appreciate his mentorship and friendship. And he is, again, a good example of somebody who knows how to go get what they want. And then lastly, we brought in Chris Voss. And Chris Voss, if you haven't heard of him, he is probably the number one negotiating expert in the world. I would say at least like at least the the most well-known, if not the best, but he has a book called Never Split the Difference, New York Times bestseller, and he is a former FBI hostage negotiator. And we bring him into this episode to talk about how to get what you want, which, you know, obviously if you're that good at negotiating, you're probably not too bad at getting the things that you want out of life. So this episode is a doozy. We brought in some some big names, some experts to talk to you about how to go get what you want out of life. So please enjoy this episode featuring David Meltzer, Jason Harris, and Chris Voss. Two years before I went bankruptcy, I went through a quantum shift, right? My wife woke me basically to understanding that I was living my life the wrong way. Mm. And so for two years, I was starting to live my life the right way. And all of a sudden, things got too steep. And I was in that, wow, Mm. I really screwed this up. Now, my mindset had always already started to evolve and accelerate. So I wasn't in, I, I would say if I went bankrupt when my wife attacked me and told me she wasn't happy and all that, I probably couldn't have handled it at that time. Yeah. But I had so much money at that time and I started on the right path 
that my mindfulness was prepared mm. for the bankruptcy. And I was probably the only one that wasn't worried. Like in my mind, it was math. I had already explored and learned and learned about the unconscious competency and realized that I carry an energy. I'm one of those people. You could take all the money in the world, dump it into a desert, and I'd be one that keeps coming back to. Like, I believe it goes back to the same people energetically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I had great confidence that there was no accident nine months out of law school as a millionaire, no accident that I was a multimillionaire. And there's no accident that I lost it all, but it really didn't worry me yeah. because I knew how to make money. What I really wanted to learn was how can I be happy with making a lot of money? And two, how can I maintain that? And what came about is understanding that it all comes through me for others. I started creating complete fulfillment, purpose, and passion by being profitable because I had a newfound incentive that was endless. Yeah. Right. When things happen for you, you can have too much or enough. You're full. Right. That's what creates this empty feeling. Is that yeah. what what do I buy now? Right. You know, <laughs> right. like I know it sounds sick to say, but I yeah. was in that place where it's like to be happy, okay, I'll buy more things, right. different things. And pretty soon it's like, this isn't it. But when it comes through you. And there's more than enough of everything for everyone. And you're like, wow, like today I spoke, I thrive. And I tried to inspire people to impact a billion people. Now, the crazy as that might sound on one stage to impact a billion people, even though there's only 2000 people in the room may have seemed crazy. As crazy as 10 years ago, when I told people that you could talk on a cell phone real time in color in China, back and forth at very little charge of any. Yeah. And they right. said, that's possible. <laughs> well, some of the people out there, when I told them today that it's not impossible to impact a billion people, just follow me. If half of you today, 1,000 of you, if I can teach you in the next hour to empower another thousand, to empower another thousand, we just impact a billion people, right? Thousand times a thousand, a million, a million times a thousand, a billion. And all of a sudden, my crazy idea of talking across the world in color for very little charge to China is about as real as impacting a billion people. And I can't tell you how many people afterwards told me, yeah. man, we're going to change the world. One eighth of the world is going to be happy because I have a new mission. Yeah, and I'm thinking to myself, this is amazing. Right, right. So I'm really curious about this because you're a big numbers guy. Yeah. I right? care a lot about numbers and you know numbers very well. But then you have this other side of you that's very much like, emotional, spiritual, and it seems like you make a lot of decisions in this realm, but with the numbers as well. And typically I find those two feel like opposing each other. So right. Can you talk about like- I see them synergy? the same, yeah. So for me, everything is math, but part of that math is energy and in motion. And so what I utilize is awareness. So the biggest gift I could give you is an awareness. So if you say, well, what does that mean? I said, for example, if health is your primary concern, imagine if you had an awareness when something that you were doing, eating, saying, believing, or surrounding yourself with was unhealthy for you or corroding your health. That'd be great awareness, don't you think? Yeah. What about it. the same thing if money was your objective? Yeah. What if you had the awareness, a simple awareness of when to buy and sell? Is there any greater gift I could give somebody in financial? You could be, I don't care who you are, what you create, what you innovate. If I give you a simple awareness that, hey, gold is this today, if you buy it this day and sell it this day, there's a margin. It's just a matter of how much money you can raise. Right, right. Because you know it. Right. So for me, this combination in this complementary world of spirituality, right, which is a flow, a currency, a faith, and actual math, and I utilize them both to elevate my vibration or my awareness to make good decisions. In fact, you know, we were talking about I have my new book coming out, Game Time Decision Making. Yeah. I believe the math and making decisions is in the ability to be more interested in interesting and raise your awareness to the assumptions you're making. Yeah. Because it all takes is one bad assumption 
that could kill you, let alone financially right. kill you. So one bad assumption, doctors make them all the time. They make one bad assumption, all of a sudden you're dead. <laughs> one bad assumption, yeah. right? And we do that with, I made one bad assumption, I lost over $100 million. I assumed that because I had equity in all my properties, the bank would give me money. Little did I know that the bank doesn't have to give you money, even if you have equity and banks can lose money and want to hold on to your property instead of loan money. And then when you're not as liquid, you miss one payment, other banks don't want to give you loans and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. One bad assumption. If I use these mentorships, someone that's been in this situation and I said, hey, I'm going to make this decision to spend all my money because I have equity and I think I'm going to borrow against. You've been doing this for 60 years. Mm -hmm. Can you see anything faulty in my assumptions? Yeah person would have said, yeah, I do actually. What if the market does this? Or what if this happens? Yeah. That's why I use other people connecting all of us since we're one anyway, to ask, you know, my two favorite questions to ask one, how can I help you? How can I be a service? How can I provide value? Whatever way you want to phrase it, it's basically, dude, do you need anything? Yeah. And the other side is the harder side is, Hey, anyway, or anyone you can help me with. Yeah. And those two questions, I will pound it into my following until and the reason I pound it and talk about it so much yeah. is I don't do it every day. It was like nine months on stage telling people to say thank you before you go to bed and when you wake up. Mm -hmm. It's a complete hypocrite because you can't do it for 30 straight days. It took me <laughs> nine months for me to do it. I was laughing today because I gave a challenge to everybody mm -hmm. to give me a thumbs up for 14 straight days. Yeah. Right. And we had 150 people in a mastermind yesterday. And yeah, most of them texted me immediately or DM me immediately a thumbs up. Yeah. Well, I got very few this morning. Really? Until I was back on stage reminding people, and then they started setting them again. And I promise you, and I, it's frustrating, but in reality, I promise you the majority of the people that have sent me thumbs up won't be doing it by Monday. The majority. Yeah. So the real success, the empty mile exists, the people that can enjoy the consistent everyday, persistent pursuit of their potential, what I call habit machine. If they can create a habit machine where their being is one in which you can effectuate what you want by consistently doing it, yeah, then you can be like, oh, I want to lose weight. Okay, I'm going to do this every day. Oh, I want to be stronger in my right arm. I'm going to do this every day. Yeah. Oh, I want to make more money. I'm going to do this every day. Oh, I'm going to improve my relationship with my kids. I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to improve. That's what's the key component of there? Being able to create a habit machine where I think about what I want to do every day and I'm out of my own way, meaning my ego is not corroding the connection of what I know to be true. Yeah. You list out three things. So go around. This is an incredible experience. And I suggest people do it. Go and say three things in your life that you know are good for you that you don't do. Right? Yeah. And then we all have them. Yeah. There's three things, right? Should drink or right? I shouldn't smoke, right? right? So whatever. Why are you doing them? Right? There's other things that you can do to have fun, but working out, not working out. Which one do you think is better for you? Probably working out. Yeah, right? <laughs> so why can't you do it every day? Let me give you an easier one. Do you believe, I'm not, I hate to interview you, but I'm going to ask yeah. you the question. <laughs> do you believe that if you say thank you every day for 30 straight days, morning and night, that'll change your life? Yes. Do you truly believe that? I do. I Do you I do, do it? I do not. Yeah, I know, no. me neither every yeah. day. I still miss. Right. I'm teaching this stuff. I know it in my heart and soul. Mathematically, yeah. I know it. Spiritually, I know it. To the point where a grateful person will look at their life and say, I have more lives to spend. I'm so grateful. Yeah. That this life is just not it. And I can't prove it either way. Neither can anyone else. But I just decided that's the more grateful way to look at it. Mm -hmm. I might as well live forever than not. <laughs> yeah, that's right? very true. Right? Yeah. And it's just like saying, I get to do this, not I got to do this. Mm -hmm. Or you get stopped at a red light and you're like, thank you. Right. Because you know that it's a bigger piece of the puzzle and that stopping at this light was actually creating a better 
experience for you in some way or manner. This is all just an attitude of gratitude. But yet the most simplest things that we can do, 99.9% of the people can't do them. Mm. Yeah. And so I learned about, all right, how do I get better at doing And I was born a certain way. And you know people that are born this way. You've seen them when they're five. I was born that way. There's no accident that nine months out of law school that I was making money. Mm -hmm. There's no accident that I was making money selling tennis shoes at four in the morning when I was in law school or educational systems when I was 18 years old, making killer money. I have an unconscious conversation. But what I have learned is I can teach people, right? I think that's why my coaching and executive coaching, coaching the coaching business advisory is that I am deep about Look, I'm going to teach you to put faith into what you want. People are like, what are you talking about? You're world renowned for this and you're telling me it's faith-based? I'm like, yeah, it's faith-based. The aggregate of what you think, say, do, believe and the unconscious competencies. I'm going to take you through with focus homework every day, mostly about minimum of 10 minutes a day. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have you putting faith by your actions, your words, your thoughts, your beliefs and your energy into what you want and using your faith, that aggregate, just like money, as an object of current as an object of energy to put as a currency into the current, the flow, yeah. which I call intention, right? What do I intend to happen that goes far beyond most people's imagination? We don't even imagine big enough. Hmm. But if I put the currency of faith into the current of intention, I'm going to learn consistently to get what I want faster and more accurately again and again and again. And pretty soon you're one of those people they are like, man, he's lucky. Yeah, right. That's all luck is. It's someone that understands the currency of faith. Yeah, just good stuff happens for him all the time. He's just one of those lucky guys. Yeah, you're full of light. Yeah, you're just attracting that to you. I worked at a, a design firm, waited tables at night. Just kind of worked nonstop. Got a job, like an entry-level job. Yeah. And went from design firm, which led me into an advertising firm, which led me kind of up the ladder. And at some point I knew as an entrepreneur... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to these different places and see how people are leading and managing and what I like and don't like about the cultures or the work. And literally, I, I mean, I'm a dork, so I literally like kept notes and a journal and you know, had a couple mentors along the way. And that led into when, I, when, we, when we really started this mechanism with a K is the second agency. I started a production company before that. And we really used a lot of our values and beliefs to formulate the culture that we have today. And so that's, that's another piece of advice is, you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom is if you're entrepreneurial, start something immediately and get out there and, and, and start your business, whatever your idea is. I subscribe to playing the long game and knowing if that's what you want to do, there's value in picking up information and clues and ideas from working at other places because it's going to save you when you start your thing. If you know the industry you want to be in, it's going to save you time from making maybe a lot of mistakes or pitfalls that you, that you learn at other places. So I think it's a long game. You don't have to start something immediately. Maybe if you have a burning idea that you know is someone's going to replicate and you got to get it out there quickly that's one case. But if you have a career, my, you know, my advice, I'm glad I did it that way because yeah. it saved me a lot of time in creating the values that we, we have today. I feel like it probably also gives you the ability to make the decisions for your business that you know are the right decisions that are not built out of, you know, this, this idea of scarcity because you know that 
you know, your that your bank account's going to run out in 30 days. So you have to make a decision that might be a little bit more, might be a little bit less thought out or might not be the best decision for the company or for the business. But you're kind of pigeonholed into making that decision because you don't have any money to outlast, you know, the business idea. Whereas, you know, the way that you did it, I'm sure, you know, and I think that this is probably almost a requirement if you go that route, which is just don't be done with your money while you're making money from your job, right? Like be smart with it, live beneath your means, put money away, save a little bit, put some toward uh, an account that you're going to use to start your business or whatever it is. And then just learn as quickly of a rate as as you can by being a part of these types of organizations. I think that's exactly right. And, And that is exactly what I did. Because when I left and started something, I took a, I don't know, 350% pay cut <laughs> to start the business, but that was okay because it wasn't life or death. And I was able to build up a portfolio and take on some clients to do case studies. And I wasn't overly, I mean, I was certainly stressed. We had a lot of lean times where we almost went out of business early on, but I wasn't as stressed because I had built myself some type of of cushion and some type of experience to go in there and not make uh, knee-jerk reactions. When you made the transition, when you finally said, okay, I'm done working for somebody else, I'm starting my own, my own venture here. What would, if you can recall, what would be your top priority at that time? And what would you recommend be somebody's top priority if they're in the middle of making a transition that's similar? Well, one thing I did in my first company was I did it I started it by myself and I did the, you know, pitching, the producing, the invoicing, the hustling, the selling. And that was super thrilling for about 12 months. And then literally felt like I was going to have a nervous breakdown. I mean, I really had like, I was like on the verge of losing my mind. And so my, my personal advice, and if, you know, if mechanism ever, if I move on here or start something new in the future, I find it critical that you don't do it on your own, that you, you know, you could be, you could start it. It could be mainly yours. Maybe you have some equity for some other folks. Maybe you have an even partnership, however you want to chalk it up. It's very important for longevity and for burnout that you have assemble some type of super friends to do it with. And that could take all different shapes and sizes, but that is really critical to longevity and making good decisions and the feeling of camaraderie and not loneliness or depression. Yeah. Having that like tight group feeling like you can conquer the world together is really, really critical in my mind. I would never do it again by myself. Do you have any advice on how to stay on the same page when it comes to, you know, this could be a business partnership or maybe just a referral partner, basically working with people and building those relationships continuously at a high level. I know that you, you know, you're constantly hanging out with people who are like leveling up their game and you know, I see, I see you, you know, the people that you hang out with on Instagram and stuff like that. And you're, you're, this is obviously something that's really important to you and you do it at a really high level. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the, I would use the same advice, which I actually I talk about a little bit in my book, which is um, on a macro level, never let relationships drop to zero. 
and always keep relationships top of mind. I I literally have a... This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. A skill that I do in my work five-day work week, which is I have 20-minute blocks every day where I reach out to three people in my network. And it doesn't have to be, you know, people overthink this reaching out to your network thing. It can be like, I know that you love at-home fitness. I'm going to send you this article on this product. I know that you are into chess. I'm going to show you how, I'm going to send you this thing about how Queen's Gambit made chess sales blow off the charts. I'm always sort of collecting information, books, articles. Like, so oftentimes when I buy a book, I'll buy, I'll just buy two or three like I just bought a, you know, think like a monk. Yeah. So I bought like, I knew I was going to like it before I bought it. I bought like four copies. So there's three people I'm going to send that to and FedEx it to that I think would get a lot of use out of that book. And so I, I'm always sort of thinking about that in a network way. And, you know, being, it's like anything you think you don't have to be disciplined, but discipline drives habit and habit drive success of building that network. And it doesn't have to be, you know, sending a book to someone with a little note takes about five minutes. Yeah. And right. popping an article to them when you're thinking about them, you know, takes 10 seconds. And that people, it's just saying you're top of mind and I'm thinking about you. It doesn't have to be carving out an hour for a conversation, you know, in our busy schedule. But just keeping people top of mind and, and thinking about your network in that way really keeps that network thriving and alive and and not letting relationship drop to zero because when you do it's really hard to 
unwind time and and remember their likes and dislikes and get back in touch with them. So that's one thing I implement. And as it goes to the partnership thing, it's similar in that we will have two of my partners are on the West Coast and I'm on the East Coast with another partner here. And we will have monthly meetings that are blocked. It's like the first Friday of every month, it's blocked out. And we there's no agenda. It's like open discussion where we just sort of free form where we all are, how we think the business is, what areas of improvement we need to be doing. And it gets, it's a, it's a time where you can save up issues you have or things you want to discuss. And you know, there's an outlet for that. And it creates an outlet where you're not holding on to resentment because you never talked about that one thing or that department you started or that person that this person hired that you don't think you should have. And that is, is very freeing and it can get intense and heated, but you get it out there and off your chest and you know there's an appointment for it. And communi- it's like any relationship and it's obvious, but it's important. You know, communication and habits. I like the name of your book, The Soulful Art of Persuasion, because this is actually a better form of persuasion. It's going to get you better results in the long term and probably better results in the short term. But uh, it might be a little bit more difficult to master because you can't just read a script and say this exact thing when somebody's feeding you this objection or whatever the case may be. So I'd love to hear before we wrap up just a couple of the quick things that that are top of mind for you when it comes to teaching persuasion, but in a different way than mainstream, you know, trainers would teach the the same topic. You know, the fundamental like like building block of the house that I see it is this idea of you know, be yourself, everyone else is already taken. And understand your value system, write down your value system, know what you, who you are as a person, what you respond to, how you communicate with people, and put yourself out there. This idea of sort of mirror matching your audience and closing a sale and getting someone to like you is old, it's old thinking. And what people respond to today are people that really know who they are and could communicate who they are and understand that it allows the other person to be vulnerable so they can do the same with you. And that builds uh, a really good relationship and a connection, even if your interests aren't similar. Mm-hmm. And even if, if they're not always aligned, it creates this trust because you're not afraid to be yourself. And, you know, people have really good bullshit detectors and it might sound what you're saying might sound good, but inside they're feeling a sense of, of you being inauthentic. And yeah. that's really the, the big building block to me of, of soulful persuasion. And there's obviously a lot more to it. I talk about 11 specific habits in the book, but you know, another one is having a generous mindset, which I didn't have when I started out in business. This was a, a habit I had to learn. This was something I had to really practice. I would not give away advice freely or contacts or information or counsel or mentorship. But I realized by giving those things away and building your network that way and trying, whenever you cross paths with someone, trying to make the interaction with them a good one and that they get something out of it and doing that habitually and learning to practice that comes back in multiple, multiple ways down the road. And that generosity of spirit is something that it can be a learned skill and that will take you really far in many places. 
It's not about keeping things close to your vest. It's about being open and free with your information, with your advice, and that really will get you far. So can you talk a little bit about tactical empathy, which is, I think, what you call it in, in the book and how that really plays into any real negotiation, and not even just negotiation, just communication in general? Yeah, if you want influence with somebody, and some of this is stuff we've been taught for years, but we just didn't know it. You got to hear them out. You got to sound them out. You got to let them know they've been heard. I mean, the cliche Stephen Covey advice, seek first to understand, then be understood. Seek first to show understanding in order to be understood. I mean, the quickest way to get your point across is to clear the other person's head. And the minute they feel heard, their head clears. They stop focusing on making sure you heard what they had to say. And consequently, their brain just opens up and is they're eminently influenceable at that point. So empathy is just demonstrating to the other side what it is about they said, what they've said that you get. There's no doubt in their mind that you get it because you told them what they're trying, the point they're trying to make. And how does that play into labeling? Like with, are those somewhat similar activities or how would you break that down? Yeah, well, labeling uh, sparked out as a demonstration of understanding of not what they said, but how they feel about it or what's driving them, what their motivations are. And most people are, are their, their motivations are either hidden or blind. So when you start calling them out in the open, it actually creates this kind of really strange bonding effect between the two of you, and it opens them up to influence. Now, what we call labeling in hostage negotiation, we called emotion labeling, and I thought it was the least applicable skill from hostage negotiation. I didn't have much use for it. I knew it was ridiculously influential in, in, on the crisis hotline and on hostage negotiation, but I didn't think it would make much difference in business. As it turns out, it's actually our most valuable skill in our business negotiations. And we changed the dynamic with this skill we refer to as labels, which seems innocuous, which is one of the reasons it's so effective because it kind of blows past people's defense mechanisms. And we use it to get them to say stuff they would never say otherwise. So can you give me an example of what that would sound like? Like pick up just a situation that somebody listening to this show might be sitting in in some sort of a business transaction where they could actually apply this idea of labeling. All right. So there's a go-to label that will work for you no matter what the circumstances are. And it is, seems like you've given that a lot of thought. Now, in any, you're going to be able to use that no matter, somebody could be attacking you. You cheated me. You didn't live up to your end of the bargain. Your company overcharges. We look at them and say, seems like they've given us a lot of thought. They're going to lay out in intimate detail what they're talking about. Now, you're, what's that contrasted to? Let's say that you're actually trying to find out where they're coming from. A good opening question might be, what happened? What makes you say that? Now, there's a problem. As soon as you ask somebody any kind of a question, their guard goes up to some degree and they want to stop and think. I mean, a good what question makes people stop and think. Now, what you really want from them is an unvarnished stream of consciousness. You don't want them to stop and think. You want them to think, to talk without thinking about what they're saying, because that's when they start revealing stuff to you that they might not otherwise give you if their guard is up. So we're trying to get people to respond to us in a really unguarded fashion. And what we found is questions cause people's guards to go up. 
which means no matter how good of an answer they give you, they're holding stuff back. And that's why you use at the beginning, you said it seems like, right? Because you don't want to make it, you don't want to say that this is what you're portraying to me. You just want to say it in a general sense of maybe somebody listening that isn't even a part of this conversation. It would seem this way, right? Is that kind of the gist? Right, right. You kind of actually, you, you bypass part of the brain and get a much clearer stream of consciousness because what happens when you say it seems like or looks like or it sounds like or it feels like people then start thinking about your observation and then they start thinking out loud and they start, they give you their stream of consciousness. Right. It's not accusatory if you say it that way. It's not accusatory. And it also, some people's guard goes up. Like, yeah, I can pose it as a question. It seems like you've given us a lot of thought. Now, the tonality is question, but since I started out with seems like, it immediately starts to trigger people, especially people who are averse to talking at all. I mean, it's one of the, one of our clients calls it unlocking the floodgates of truth talk because it just gets people talking. Incredible. How important, since you brought up tonality, I know you talk about the 738-55 rule in the book. Can you explain what that means really quickly and talk about the importance of tonality and body language? Well, you know, there's all sorts of data out there that indicates the impact of tonality. And they, you know, they say the non-content, other than the definition of the words, how much communication is other than the words, how much is body language, how much is tonal voice. And some people will say up to 90%, 93%. You know, very few people will peg it at less than 60%. But no matter what, the ratios are always four or five to one tonality. And most people get tonality wrong. Like, I may lay out a proposition for you and I may try to say, does this work for you? And I, my tone of voice says, it works for you. And if you don't see it that way, you are an idiot. Or I could say, does this work for you? Or does this work for you? You know, I've put my tonality in two different spots there as if I was actually asking. I said it three different ways. I use the exact same words. One of them was impatient, judgmental. The other two were inquiring and genuinely curious. And you get three completely different reactions. And you start beginning to choose your tonality and your inflection. You'd be shocked with what you can get away with saying to people. I've, since reading the book, basically been implementing a lot of these different things and even a lot of my emails and conversations, some difficult conversations that I've had to have with people where there's been a lack of agreement or a lack of execution on an agreement. And it's incredible how some of these tools and tactics disarm people who are coming at you. People who you think are you thinking like there's zero chance that this guy's going to be reasonable at any time soon. And then literally just saying one or two of these things. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're, oh, we're talking again. We're normal people again. Like that, that level of rage is just taken down instantly by applying just a little bit of tactical empathy and labeling their emotions for them. And then all of a sudden just like, oh, okay, now we can talk. Now the guard's down. Now let's have a conversation. And it's, it's just incredible to me. One of my favorite things that you talk about is calibrated questions, calibrated statements. So how can we, and I know that this is what you do now. So how can we use calibrated questions in a business negotiation where you're not asking for proof of life and different things like that? Yeah. You know, it should be the first where you say no. If you're in any negotiation and the other side is either making it difficult on you or 
you got to test them. You tested them for firmness in their position and either tempted to say no, or you have to say no. Before you say no, you should say, how am I supposed to do that? You say it with deference. You say it, you don't say it as accusatory, you know, tonality. You don't say, how am I supposed to do that? Because your tone of voice says, you idiot. You know, you say it with deference. There's great power in deference. How am I supposed to do that? I mean, that buys you time. It's one of the biggest things people learn the fastest from the book. It's the first story in the book, laying that out. And I will tell you that we have so many emails from people that said just learning that has so changed their success rate in business that they're killing it. They think they want to, they should work on our staff. They're doing so well. A lot of negotiation is getting people to see your side, right? So what better way to do that than saying, how am I supposed to do that when they have to then put themselves in your shoes and actually try to figure out for you how you're supposed to be able to do that, right? Is that that's basically the whole idea. That's exactly what happens. And even if they don't give you an inch, it makes them stop and look at you. It makes them stop and think. And it feels very collaborative to them. They feel like they're in charge because people love to be asked how to do something. I mean, it appeals to their ego in an insane way. And you gain so many psychological advantages. And at a bare minimum, you force them to take a look at your situation, which buys you latitude in so many other levels. Most of the time, there were no shortage of stories where people say contractor cut his price by 50% on the spot. They adjusted the terms on the spot. It's astonishing how effective it is. Yeah. How much of that do you think is the fact that most people, I would say, by and large, are uncomfortable in any sort of a negotiation situation and using a question like that might get them to change terms because they want out of the uncomfortable situation? Do you think that that plays into it at all? Now, you know, we're not really into putting the other side into discomfort, if you will. And I'm not sure that that's it. I mean, I agree on every other point that you make. I think the people are uncomfortable with a lot of negotiations. I think desire to be comfortable again is so strong that it's actually counterproductive. People would rather be comfortable than successful. People would rather be comfortable than be healthy. Comfort food is generally why many of us are overweight. You know, you are eating for comfort in the moment. I mean, when I'm really down, I'm probably going to eat a whole entire pizza by myself. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, yeah. comfort comfort is a is a big driver of, of human behavior. But how am I supposed to do that? What that really does, it changes the, the dynamic, not really so that they're uncomfortable in a negotiation, but they it kicks in fairness and the, the fairness gene in the other side. It kicks in a lot of other good things that you want for a good, solid, long-term collaboration. It kicks in, we're driving for forced collaboration, where the other side collaborates and feels good about it, because we got to collaborate to have a great outcome, because you got to collaborate to implement your deal. There's no way around collaboration. I don't care what, I don't care what your deal is. you got to collaborate to implement, whether you like it or not. And we're, we're setting ourselves up for the post-agreement implementation. So I'm not sure that we're really making the other side uncomfortable. That's that's not our plan in, in that move. Got it. When people start to haggle with you, when they're focusing purely on price and they're trying to do that, well, I was thinking this much. And then you go, well, I was thinking this much. And they're like, okay, well, what if we did this? And then you go, what if we did this? And then all of a sudden you're like, keep haggling on this price. What do you do to get out of that situation? Yeah. And, I, and, I, and as a caveat, I will tell you, we got a bargaining system in the book called the Ackerman Method. 
But in point of fact, we don't bargain over price anymore because if you're haggling with me over price, either you don't think the value is there or somebody you work for doesn't think the value is there. So somebody in your company could be putting a lot of pressure on you. I'm going to shift to that. If you got a problem with price, again, by definition, the value is not there for you. So if the value ain't there for you, me cutting the price is still not solving your problems. So I'm going to shift again to, all right, so if you say that's too expensive, I'll say it sounds like the value is not there for you. And we'll immediately go talk about what's wrong with the product, the implementation, the deal, the terms, everything other than price. If you're haggling over price, you are talking about the wrong thing in the negotiation. And nobody that we advise, I was on a phone with a security company the other day. He was one of his clients wanted to haggle with him over price. I said, man, do not cut your price. They're, they're either haggling with you because it's a game and they're okay with the price. They just want to haggle, which means you shouldn't cut the price or they're haggling with you because there's a service problem they're unhappy with. And cutting your price is not going to address the service problem. Either, whichever of those two things it is, it's not a price issue. It's a delivery issue or they just, they're bored. And you got to find out which one it is and you got to address it, but do not cut your price. So nobody out there should haggle over their price. If, so, if there's price pressure on you, the answer is better service. The answer is better implementation. If you believe that you should over deliver, And if you live by those words, then whatever you're charging is a bargain and don't cut the price. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischapel.com slash team. And my biggest ask of you since I'm sharing my friends with you is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet and leave us a quick five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.